1: Hello, I'm Kenneth Couquier, senior editor at The Paper, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. On today's show, fake news has been in the, well, news lately. Facebook and Google have been criticized for not doing enough to use their algorithms to stop the spread of unverified news
2: during America's election campaign. Our deputy editor Tom Standage weighs in on the debate. I think we need to be careful of not falling into the trap of saying Trump won because fake news on Facebook. And McElvoy speaks to female entrepreneurs at the Web Summit in Lisbon about problems facing
1: women in technology.
3: So I do think this soft or unconscious bias is our current most meddlesome problem.
1: And science correspondent Ananyo Bhattacharya
4: explains a new way to measure fish stocks. So, researchers at the University of Copenhagen decided that they would go fishing, but they wouldn't go fishing for fish, they'd go fishing for this DNA. But first,
1: in the aftermath of the US presidential election, many people argue the campaign was distorted by the preponderance of fake news online. Fingers are being pointed at dominant platforms like Google and Facebook for not doing enough to police the content they present and ensure the veracity, as media companies that distribute information to the public have traditionally done. Why is this a technology story? It's because the volume of information is so vast that the only way to do the vetting is by algorithms. And this raises the questions, do the algorithms work well enough, and can they be made more transparent or accountable? So what can online platforms do to staunch the rise of fake news? I'm joined by Tom Standage, The Economist's deputy editor. Hello, Tom. Hello. So Tom, let's start
2: here. What's the scale of the problem? Well, I think we need to be careful of not falling into the trap of saying Trump won because fake news on Facebook. Obviously, it's not as simple as that. But there is clearly a problem, which is that in this particular case, there were these strange news sites in Macedonia that were essentially just producing fake stories. They tried producing fake stories on a wide range of subjects, fake stories about Hillary, fake stories about Trump. Basically, fake stories that appeal to Trump supporters seem to gain the most traction. So being algorithmically driven, as you would expect them to be, they focused on what worked best. And essentially, that generated lots of traffic from Facebook to their sites where they could sell ads. Do we have any sense that this was commercially motivated or politically motivated? It was totally commercially motivated because we can see that at the beginning of the process, they were completely ambivalent about what sort of fake news they produced. They just wanted stuff that would generate traffic. So this is old-fashioned content farming, taking advantage of the fact that because the election was going on, there was lots and lots of interest in these particular topics. And they simply looked at what generated the most clicks, what sorts of stories. And of course, they weren't constrained, as journalists are, by whether it was true or not. Great. OK, so what could the online platforms have done? Well, one of the things that they have subsequently done, and they're being criticised because they have only done this after the election, is they have essentially blacklisted these sites from their ad-serving systems. So that means you can't make money from this anymore if you're one of these sites because the Google and Facebook ad networks, which are the big two, uh, won't serve the ads onto your site so you don't make money. The problem is that, you know, it's already after the election, isn't this closing the stable door after the horse has bolted? But I think there's a deeper problem, which is that if you actually tried to do more than just, you know, not just shut off the ad money, but actually not show them in the feed at all, that's a much more difficult challenge. The problem with that is, and lots of people are looking at this, how can you determine which news sources are trustworthy and and so on? And that's not just a data science problem. That's a political problem, because even if you have systems which sort of say, well, the New York Times seems to be quite credible and people seem to click on it and not complain, you can game those systems. You could imagine a scenario where Facebook or Google introduces some sort of vetting system system and lots of liberals vote to say Fox News is a completely untrustworthy source or lots of Republicans vote to say the New York Times is a completely untrustworthy source. So you can't do this just with people and you can't do it just with algorithms. And that's the problem that Facebook has. Let me press you on this because Google seems to
1: be a very good example of a company that has been able to manage the huge cornucopia of information online by creating a ranking algorithm does a fairly good job of placing higher value information higher up in the search results and lower value information, lower down,
2: simply by looking at the metadata rather than the underlying data. Shouldn't this be an example to follow? Not really, because Google is not basing that choice based on whether the information is accurate or not. It's basing its choice on whether people click and whether they subsequently stay on the page, in other words, whether they find it valuable. And there is a very clear tension here between what Facebook and Google want and what is in society's interest more broadly. And it's particularly true in Facebook's case. And I think part of the problem is also that Facebook has had a go at doing this, and the attempts it's had at doing it have been abject failures. In its new promoted news feed, it used editors. They were accused of being politically biased, so it got rid of them and replaced it with an algorithm, and the algorithm starts promoting fake news. So there's clearly a problem with the quality of that algorithm, but there's a deeper problem for Facebook, which is that what Facebook ultimately wants to do is keep you on its platform and keep you as engaged as possible and the way it does that is by serving you stuff that it knows that you're likely to engage with based on your previous behavior and that means stuff from your friends people you've engaged with in the past stuff that interests you stuff that's similar to what you've seen before and that's the drawback here because that stuff may or may not be true it's just stuff that you engage with. And the other problem, of course, is that it means you're only served stuff that's similar to what you've engaged with before, so you don't hear from people who disagree with you politically, you don't see stories you know, that challenge your views, and it keeps you in this filter bubble.
1: Well, that's right. So they have an interest in creating a balance between being a bubble and giving variety, between keeping you on the platform
2: and not being a cesspool for fake news. So what's the solution? Well, there isn't an easy one. I think some sort of content filtering with quality filters, some of which are imposed by either human editors or by a voting system, but then how do you stop that system from being gamed? that's a big challenge. But I think there is actually an opportunity here for entrepreneurs to sort of imagine what a Facebook-like service might look like that gave you a more challenging view of the world. So Eli Pariser, who coined the term filter bubble, suggested that you should automatically have stories forced into your feed that you ought to be reading, but maybe weren't. More stories about Syria, because not enough people are paying attention to Syria. I'm not sure that's the answer. But um, you could imagine a situation where a Facebook-like service, or maybe even Facebook itself, would notice that my interests in, say, music and where I go on holiday and what I like to eat are very similar to those of somebody else, someone whose political views are very different from mine. And they might suggest that maybe I should have a look at their feed, or maybe I should become friends with them, or or something like that. Because the strange thing is, we have more connectivity than ever before. And it's easier to communicate than ever before. And yet, in Britain, we've ended up being divided into the pro-Brexit and the anti-Brexit people. And in the US, you have these two essentially separate communities of people. And the statistics are extraordinary. The number of people in America you know, who know someone on the other side of the political fence. And the same is true in Britain. It's very, very small. So technology ought to be making this better and it's making it worse. So I think the challenge to technologists is how can we use technology not to reinforce these bubbles, but to try and do something about bursting them.
1: Thanks a lot, Tom. Thank you. If you have any comments about the impact of fake news, not this Babbage podcast, but fake news, put them in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com and contribute to the dialogue. Last week, tens of thousands of technology entrepreneurs, startups, and investors convened at the annual Web Summit in Lisbon to exchange ideas and business cards. One of the hot topics there was diversity. And McElvoy, a senior editor at the paper, traveled there to find out whether the gender balance in tech is really evening out.
5: I've just retreated into a quietish corner here at the Web Summit in Lisbon. Even the coffee machine here is automated. It rolls along, stopping narrowly short right now of my left foot. It's manned by a human who makes real coffee, but it trundles around and it's just a reminder of the kind of changes in consumer technology that are on their way. But one of the big themes about mere humans here at this summit has been who's involved in technology and how to diversify that. There are still relatively few big female investors, so I'm off to see one of them. Her name is Teresia Gao, co-founder of Aspect Ventures, a rarity among venture capital companies in Silicon Valley. It's set up and managed by women and investing in some tech products aimed at women, as well as the gender neutral kind. So is Teresia upbeat?
3: Well, unfortunately, like many things, I think the data's gotten worse before it gets better. So when I joined the industry in the late 90s, we were 10% female investors and the most recent study shows that we've dropped to 6%. Now you might say it's a law of small numbers, so you know a couple of people leaving here and there would drop it down. And that would be reason for concern, but the number of women founders and co-founders starting venture-backed companies has doubled over that same period of time, from about 9 to 10% to almost 20%. And that is actually our pipeline of people who then, perhaps after being successful as a founder and entrepreneur, then wanting to go onto the investing side, either as an angel investor or as a former VC. What about alleged
5: soft bias? Do you think there are different expectations? Of course, no one now goes out there and says stupid things, probably unguarded things that people used to say about women in technology 10 years ago, but I sometimes worry that that means that the attitudes are more hidden or that prejudices can be sort of kept in a cupboard but might still play a part and that's a bit harder to address isn't it than somebody who comes out and says I won't hire women in my
3: firm oh whoops did I just say that Unfortunately, I think it's gotten worse, but I think there are big programs that are trying to train people for this. The classic example to me is in hiring, and that's why there's a lot of software programs that try to take this out. I mean, there's all these studies that show if you look at a resume, exact same resume, and there's a male-sounding name and a female-sounding name, the male-sounding name will end up in the to-be-interviewed pile at double the rate of the other one. There's a very famous Harvard Business School case study about venture capitalists, a good friend of mine. Her real name is Heidi Roizen. wrote the case in two versions, Heidi and Harry, and unanimously they would invest in Harry more than they would invest in Heidi, and they didn't like Heidi very much. Even though every other word was the same, they thought Heidi was, wait for it, too aggressive and difficult. Words that I think unfortunately many of us, many of us females in businesses where that's not necessarily the usual case have heard. So I do think this soft or unconscious bias is our current most meddlesome problem. And I think it starts with really understanding that it exists.
5: But what if just recognising that the existence of a skew away from hiring women isn't enough? Are there measures that can be adopted to address it? And might tech be part of the answer?
3: There are things that we can do to help train or minimise unconscious or soft bias in the hiring process. So everything from software, so there's some first rounds of software to determine which resumes actually get a phone call or a meeting, and that obviously takes the human bias out.
5: So a rather nice circle then. Computers may help compensate for human bias and get more women into top jobs. But that can only happen if there are qualified applicants, trained women in computer science.
6: Well, there's a couple of problems. One is what we call the pipeline issue, so attracting more
5: young girls into computing, and that's definitely an issue. Tella Whitney runs the Anita Borg Institute for Women and Technology. Once a computer scientist herself, she explains that it wasn't always a male-dominated field.
6: I found computer science in the mid-80s. There was less... of what computer science was and in fact it was almost 40% women in computer science nowadays it's closer to 18% so it has actually gone down
5: so why is that so 40% women in computer science in the 80s I suppose from a much lower base yes what were they all doing
6: well I mean at those days I mean when I first took a programming class it was cards what happened is is that that the personal computer came out shortly thereafter and the probably the, the biggest application that ran on the PC was the game. And so there was a lot more boys doing that. And the image of what a computer scientist was, I think, turned girls off. I mean, still today, the image of what a computer scientist is, it doesn't... Girls do not realise what
5: an impact you can make on the world. So with only 18% of computer science graduates being women, I asked her what we have to do to turn that figure back round. Well, here's the thing, is that we know what to do. There are universities that are actually making a
6: huge difference. So, for example, Harvey Mudd has almost 50% of their computer science undergraduates are women. It's the introduction to computer science, having a different class for those that haven't been programming since they're three years old. And so many universities are looking at their curriculum in ways that
5: are more attractive to a wider set of people. And what about attracting women to this labor market? Even the wording on job descriptions might be turning many away. Theresia Gao.
3: In Silicon Valley, I know it's a very dorky term. They started using the word, you know, um, customer service ninja instead of customer service representative or because they thought it sounded cooler. But it turns out the word ninja, because it sounds like, you know, what it is, a male martial arts fighter, women don't apply to that job. Women actually do very well in that <laughs> Who job. Who wants to be a ninja, really, when they so, grow so up? So that's, for example, right? Even other words like go-getter aggressive because women are taught that that's bad. You know, if if a woman's not ever called aggressive, she's called something that I won't say on your podcast. And so instead, but if they say fast-paced, dynamic team environment, and using the words team and collaboration, which tends to be the type of work environment that women are more interested in and applying to. If you write certain words, you will turn women off, and if you take those words out, you can increase the women applying to that same job by 40 to 50%.
5: So if you're currently seeking ninjas, but wanting real-life women, it might be time to revise that job ad. Tech is gender-blind. The humans who organise it might want to head in that direction too.
1: Anne McElvoy among the robots, and some of the humans, at the Web Summit in Lisbon. Last week we discussed how a greening world may have at least some positive effects on the environment by absorbing more carbon from the atmosphere. Our environment correspondent also laid out the possible fallout for the environment with Donald Trump as America's new president. As always, there was some lively conversation on social media. On Facebook, Tiffany Chu said, quote, We will need to take any positives we can after Trump is appointing a contrarian of climate change to lead the EPA and possibly renouncing U.S. participation in the Paris Accord. Gary Pistoki took an active approach, saying, quote, I've planted many trees over the past decades. Plant stuff whenever and wherever you can, even in containers outside. Erica Benton, however, took the long view. She explained, quote, The planet knows what to do. It's warmed up and cooled down many times. What is your view? Don't forget, all of you can have your say by getting involved on our Facebook page or on Twitter, at Economist Radio. Finally, about 90% of the world's fish stocks are being fished either to their limit or beyond it. But monitoring the numbers reliably is not an easy task. A better way to do so would therefore be good news for trawlers, but also for scientists hoping to see the effects of a changing world beneath the water's surface. Anunno Bhattacharya, our science correspondent, is here to tell us about a new method which could help. Hello, Anunno. Hi there, Ken. So tell us first, how are the surveys done at the moment?
4: Right. So they're done in a variety of ways, but probably the most useful and popular is to send a trawler out, drop a net into the deep blue sea, drag it along the bottom for a fixed period of time, and then haul up your net and see what's in there. And uh, after counting up the fish, you can extrapolate that to get a sort of density of fish stocks in the area. So costly and cumbersome. Indeed. And also the trawlers don't get to go everywhere. There are some parts of the seabed where you can't just drop nets. They're too sandy, too soft, or uh, too rocky. So how does this new technique work? So fish give out DNA in various forms. So when they shed some of their scales or their slime, a bit of fish DNA goes with it. And when they excrete, shall we put it like that, there's also um, some of their scrambled up DNA in there. So researchers at the University of Copenhagen decided that they would go fishing, but they wouldn't go fishing for fish, they'd go fishing for this DNA on board a research trawler. Great, so they collect the DNA, what then? So they scoop up about two litres of water at each point that the trawler makes a measurement, they take it back to the lab, and then they look at what DNA there is inside. And from the amount of DNA that there is, they try to make an estimate of the abundance of each particular species or family. Family of fish.
1: So really interesting. So we're able to take a sample of the water in lieu of actually taking a sample of the fish and extrapolate off of that.
4: Yeah, that's right. At least that was the theory. In the end, they did see a correlation. They found, for example, that the Greenland halibut, which was the most abundant species caught by the trawler, that also had the, the most DNA in their samples. They also found that the Greenland shark, oddly also seem to be very prevalent in, in the waters, but actually the, the trawler only caught one of them. Now, they think that uh, the Greenland shark is actually a bit of an escape artist. It's known to be able to wriggle away from uh, nets. And so they actually think that it's possible that their DNA method was a bit more accurate. However, overall, the correlation between the abundance of each fish species as determined by the trawl data and the abundance as determined by DNA was not that close and probably not close enough yet to determine the fish stock. So what's the benefit of this? Is this for a commercial gain or for a scientific gain? I think both. To know what fish you should conserve and what fish stocks you should conserve, both in terms of their scientific value and their commercial value, you need to know where they're endangered and what is endangered. This is really interesting technology. What I love most about it is that Of all the benefits that we thought
1: humanity would get when we uncovered DNA, the idea of using this technique to understand fish stocks was just not one of them. In fact, it seems like it's a lot more fungible of a technology than we originally thought. We're applying it to whole new other areas outside of, you know, human health.
4: Where else is it going? Yeah, uh, environmental DNA has, uh, people have looked for it on land to try and investigate the species that are normally quite elusive. They've looked in freshwater environments like bays to see uh, what animal populations are like in those sorts of areas as well. Anunno, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Ken. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read Anunno's article in the science section this week, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist and printer online. If you have any thoughts or comments or views or questions about this week's episode, write to us on Twitter at Economist Radio or on our Facebook page. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools,